You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is uh, Jessica, Jessica Lovering. She's the director of Breakthroughs Energy Program, and they're gonna, they work on uh, nuclear energy policy. So, uh, Jessica, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Hey, good. How are you doing? All right. Yeah, I'm interested to talk to you. I haven't talked to anyone in the, uh, in the world of nuclear power ever, so this will be uh, you know, oh, interesting. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, looking forward to it. You know, I know a little bit about nuclear power, but it seems to have a bad rap, I guess, because of Chernobyl and, you know, through, through my island and even Fukushima and, you know, incidents like that. So what, um, what got you into it? You know, how did you ever get involved in this sphere in the first place? Yeah, that's a, um interesting story. I think one thing I just want to point out is I do work on all types of energy policy, um, but okay. have kind of come to, come to focus on nuclear in the last several years in particular because of its unique opportunities, but also challenges that need to be worked out. So how I got into nuclear uh, was really coming from a, a concern about climate change. I started in a master's program in environmental policy and was looking at energy in particular, you know, is the main driver of um, greenhouse gas emissions or the main source of greenhouse gas emissions. And um, in one of my classes, we were doing this really simple modeling about how different countries could decarbonize, um, you know, how many wind turbines it would take, how many solar panels it would take, et cetera. And um, looking at how seemingly simpler it was to build nuclear, um, you know, at the time it was quite naive assumption, but um, because nuclear plants are so big, it only takes a few um, to to power some countries. And well, how do you, I just how do you compare really... um, what's the energy output of a, of a nice sized nuclear plant versus, uh, you know, like a coal fired plant or some other plant? Yeah, a nuclear plant is typically the ones we're building now are over one gigawatt or 1000 megawatts. Um, coal plants uh, can be that size or generally more like 600 megawatts. So they are roughly the same size. Um, nuclear tends to be bigger, um, but and a natural gas plant may be more down now in kind of 400 megawatt size, but compared to a wind turbine or a solar panel, it's, you know, huge. Um, so they are good for replacing those coal plants. But what caught my attention was that no one, especially in my program, I was at University of Colorado in Boulder, um, was really talking about nuclear. And even I didn't realize at the time how much of the electricity in the U.S. Com- comes from nuclear. It's about 20%. Um, and oh, wow. it's, you know, low carbon, just like um, just like wind and solar. And so 
it just sort of struck me that no one was talking about it. We were all very concerned about climate change, looking for, you know, doing drastic things, um, you know, big, big investments in, in renewable energy, but no one was really talking about nuclear. So that's, that's how I got interested. Uh, and I've, I've been working on it ever since, um, trying to find, you know, why don't we have more nuclear? Why aren't other countries building more nuclear? What are the obstacles? What are some of the big benefits? Um, and particularly from a policy perspective, what can be done? Yeah, I guess I was going to joke with you and say, when it comes to careers, you took the nuclear option. <laughs> I've heard that yeah. before. <laughs> oh, man, I thought it was a new joke. But, um, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, again, uh, what, what have you found? So you, know, you decided to, I guess, focus your efforts in this area. But um, I guess to start with, what do friends and relatives say? And then what has uh, the people that you work with say and you know and other scientific disciplines and everything do they say oh you know great idea or you're getting flack for wanting to work in this area what's it been like <laughs> yeah um i think there's definitely a generational divide um you know my my parents come from a generation that's just sort of implicitly anti-nuclear um i'm from california and so there's definitely that feeling there but most people still don't, maybe the general population doesn't know a lot about nuclear. And what I found with sort of my generation, um, which is a bit younger, is that we don't have a lot of the same um, kind of baggage around the technology. And because so many people, um, at least in my circles, are really interested in, you know, air pollution and climate change um, and environmental protection, they're a little more open to ideas um, around clean energy um, than maybe their parents' generation. So um, I was particularly surprised uh, when I moved back to California to start working at the Breakthrough Institute and working on nuclear. I'd go to a lot of like clean clean energy events or clean tech kind of networking events and meeting people that work in renewables, um, particularly solar in the in San Francisco area. Um, and I told them I work on nuclear. People were generally pretty positive and like, oh, that's really cool. Um, and just sort of a, we both work in clean tech kind of attitude, which I wasn't expecting. Um, and I think starting, you know, I started really seriously working on nuclear about um, six years ago. And what surprised me the most, I think, is one, that there's all these new companies working on nuclear. It's not just the same old, you know, GE and Westinghouse trucking away. Um, there's a lot of innovation going on, a lot of new ideas. Um, about how to use nuclear and how to deploy nuclear power um, around the world. And the second thing was looking at decarbonization in the past. So how countries um, reduced their emissions, you know, in the 60s and 70s. It wasn't motivated by environmental reasons. It was due to the oil crisis. But countries that, you know, got off oil to a large extent really fast actually did it with nuclear power, which I didn't really know about or, you know, think about nuclear being used in that way. But um, a lot of countries in Europe did these big nuclear buildouts in the 70s. And you can see this major shift in how, where their energy comes from across the board. Uh, you know, their emissions drop, but also their, their oil imports drop. And that was really dramatic to me because that's sort of the thing we need to be, that's definitely what we need to be seeing now, um, getting off of fossil fuels and seeing it actually happen and actually work um, was really surprising to me. I guess the um, the downside, though, is if something goes wrong, there's an accident. I mean, look at Chernobyl. You know, there's areas that are going to be contaminated for 
supposedly 35,000 years. And, you know, uh, yeah. there's like the head, head oversight. I mean, the, if things go wrong with nuclear, um, I mean, it can have a consequence for hundreds of thousands or millions of years, and that area could never, ever be used again. That's that's definitely how a lot of people think of nuclear and why, particularly on, on um, the environmentalist side, there's a lot of hesitation around it. Um, I think it's it's pretty complex. I mean, Chernobyl is sort of the most extreme case we have. And there, you know, there weren't that it it was a terrible tragedy, um, but it's a, today it's a manageable one. And I think the thing that I'm, I won't discount the accident there, but just the context is that it was in the Soviet Union at the time and they did a lot of bad things in a lot of industries um, and covered up a lot of different types of accidents. And uh, it was a nuclear accident there. Um, But, you know, people live in that area now, um, you know, they're managing that problem. Um, There's people that work around the plant, they're still doing the cleanup. And so um, for how much electricity nuclear is provided globally, the amount of um, sort of mortality impacts that it had, it's had has been tiny compared to, you know, coal, oil, um, even hydro has a lot more kind of accidents um, that we don't really think about. And so I don't want to minimize um, kind of the historic problems that nuclear has had, but to say that on the whole, it's very safe. Um, it's had a really good track record. A lot of the really bad um sort of contamination events that we think about with nuclear, like um, Hanford, which you mentioned, um, you know, Sellafield in the UK, are really from the weapons complex, so military sites. And they get, you know, grouped together in people's minds, which is um, understandable. But um, the nuclear power industry has had a a much better record uh, in terms of safety and, um, you know, transparency more recently and, you know, proper management of their material. So I think there's one thing to to deal with the historic legacy, which is a challenge, but looking forward to the new technologies, um, the new reactor designs that companies are working on and starting to deploy, um, they have a lot of um, inherent safety features that make it so they can't have those types of accidents. Um, And that's sort of where we're seeing the future of nuclear going uh, and what gets people excited about it. So what, what are some of the new developments in nuclear, you know, in addition to the safety and their different mechanisms by which they create the power? I mean, what kind of details can you give? Yeah, so um, kind of the, the closest technology that's going to be deployed, the, sort of built first um, is not too radical, but it is in its, in its business case, which is small modular reactors. So those are kind of the same technology as, as the big plants we have now. They're just um, much smaller and built um, kind of on a on a assembly line, like in a factory. Um, so the idea is to make them much cheaper and faster to build. Um, and there's a company that's currently going through the licensing stage right now in the U.S. and looking to build their first plant in kind of the early 2020s. That's New Scale. Um, and their design, their reactor is 50 megawatts, um, which is big still, but much smaller than a than a thousand megawatt plant that we have today. And they do have um, the way the geometry of the plant is. They can rely um, in an accident on convective cooling. So that's, you know, everyone can sort of in, in, um, intuit this process where, you know, 
in a very tall cylinder, the hot water is going to go to the top and then it's going to come back down as it cools and kind of start that cycle. That's kind of a natural cooling process. So what happens is if there's an accident, um, you can rely on that process. You don't have to have, you know, make sure all your pumps are working to pump new cooling water into that reactor for um, weeks. You can rely on that natural cooling. Um, and that's really important because that's been where, you know, accidents, you know, like at Fukushima, um, the big challenge was they couldn't get cooling water in. Um, they had to keep pumping in new cooling water. So um, that's one of those inherent or passive safety features that's really important to new nuclear. Going beyond the small modular reactors, um, a lot, almost all of the designs that people are working on use a different coolant than water. Um, so oh, were they, they using like heavy water or something? Yeah, so Canada still uses heavy water as their coolant um, for uh, a different reason. But water, any kind of water, um, the challenge is that it boils at a pretty low temperature and becomes steam. And then you have to pressurize that steam and keep it in a container, which is how you get these big, heavy um, steel vessels that have to keep that pressure in. So most um, most of the advanced nuclear designs that people are working on don't use water as their coolant. They use something that stays liquid at very high temperatures. So things like molten salts, um, liquid metals, or um, there's also companies working on gas cool designs. Um, so they don't have any liquid in there. Um, they have high pressure gas. So that's a different design. But for the ones, um, particularly molten salt and liquid metal, the big benefit is that you don't have to have these these really thick vessels holding all that pressure in. And also, when the reactor gets really hot, you're not worried about your liquid boiling off. Um, it's like a big pot of soup um, that kind of keeps things, you know, cool as a relative term because um, they are very hot, but they stay the coolant stays liquid. Um, and they have a lot of uh, safety benefits. They really can't have those types of accidents uh, because you can't really lose the coolant. And also, um, there's a lot of different fuels that these designs are using that can't melt um, because they're they're just able to withstand much higher temperatures. Um, and so that's the big worry with any of our light water reactors today is when the fuel melts, that's when you get release of these sort of dangerous materials. Um, so yeah, those are the big those are the big picture um, benefits or okay. attributes of these new designs that that why people think it's it's really a game changer for nuclear. What about the atoms themselves? You know, what are the, you know, the plutonium, uranium, I mean, what do they use now versus in the past or is it the same? Yeah, it's going to be roughly the same still, uh, mostly uranium. Um, actually, I'll, I think all the giants are still um, uranium fuels. Um, different um, structures, so some some are looking at using metal fuels instead of oxide fuels. I won't, I won't go into that, but... Um, one of the challenges um, for for these new companies is that right now most fuel in the U.S. is um, or in the world really is enriched to um, less than five percent. So you need a certain amount of uranium two thirty five. That's the the sort of good stuff in uranium fuel. But natural uranium is mostly uranium two thirty eight. So different isotopes. Um, so you need to enrich it sort of sort of get more of that uranium-235 in the fuel. Um, and light water reactors around the world today are, are kind of 3 to 5% U235, um, whereas a lot of these designs want to go up 
kind of closer to 20%. Um, there's a, a pretty strong um, limit on 20% um, for non-proliferation reasons. Um, when you start to go above 20%, it gets a little um, concerning um, for countries that might, that might be secretly working on weapons. So um, 20% is kind of a, a standard where we don't want people to go about 20%. But a lot of these companies are looking at fuels that go kind of, you know, 10, 10 to 20%. And that fuel, that supply chain is not available right now. So that's one of the challenges is figuring out who's going to make that fuel, where is it going to be made, you know, it'd be great to make it in the U.S. Um, and there's actually legislation going that was introduced in the Senate a few weeks ago, um, kind of looking at taking some excess uh, enriched uranium that the Department of Energy has and seeing if they could kind of make some of the first batches of fuel as kind of a, a way to jumpstart um, the first demonstrations of these reactors, uh, providing sort of a guaranteed supply of this of this high enriched or um, higher enriched uranium fuel. But what about spent fuel? Spent fuel rods that, that exist anymore. You know what? what yeah. Kind of, um, um, products are created, and how long are they alive with their half life? What do you do with them? Yeah. So the U.S. has a, a you know all of our spent fuel from our entire history of uh, nuclear energy production. We're not really doing anything with it. We sort of we had a plan. We had actually a you know a federal policy put in Yucca Mountain, but that's kind of stalled and. One reason that's not such a bad thing is that there's actually still a lot of energy in spent fuel. Um, about 96% of the energy that you could get out of it is still in there. So um, kind of burying it underground permanently um, doesn't seem like a great idea uh, from a from an energy perspective. It's kind of like using a AA battery, just 4% of the energy and then, toss, and then tossing away. So um, we still need to deal with that problem, even if we even if we stopped making nuclear power today, and even if we built a whole bunch of new um, fancy advanced reactors, we still need to deal, find something to do with that spent fuel. So one thing um, that other countries do is reprocessing, so it's sort of like recycling the fuel. Um, you kind of chop it up, um, do some chemical processes, and uh, you can use that. Um, really, you get the plutonium out and use it again, or use it in um, commercial nuclear power. And that's one thing you can do with it. Um, there's also different ways that you can recycle fuel with some of these advanced reactors. So um, a lot, some of them kind of use um, spent fuel directly as fuel. Um, some of them you might need reprocessing, but a lot of them, because they're um, different designs, it's very different, but there's um, most of them are making waste that's not as radioactive and radioactive for shorter time periods. So they're burning up more of the material in the fuel. Um, so anything that's sort of using fuel more efficiently is good. Um, and some of them, there's certain reactor designs that are liquid fueled, um, which is very different than what we do now. Instead of having solid fuel rods, you have the fuel as a liquid that's going through the reactor and you can get a lot more of the energy out because you just keep using it over and over again. Um, and then there are um, several companies working on fast reactors, which um, are, they use neutrons in a different way 
than all the reactors that we have today, which are what are called thermal neutron reactors. Um, won't go into the details, but they're actually much better at either burning up material, new uh, sort of radioactive material, or um, making new fuel. So if you were looking towards a more sustainable nuclear fuel cycle, you'd want to be going towards more fast reactors uh, in the future. And that's why there was a big push around fast reactors in the U.S., um, France, and Japan kind of in the, in the 70s because uh, we were looking at thinking there was going to be a very big build out of nuclear and worried about that we wouldn't have enough fuel. Um, so looking at how to you know get more energy out of that fuel and also use that fuel more times, recycle it, um, and kind of get every last drop out um, of our radioactive material, which also the, the benefit is there's a lot more waste at the end. Oh, sorry, <laughs> a lot less waste the, uh... at the end. Uh, when was the last time, uh, when was the latest, newest nuclear reactor put up in the U.S.? Um, actually, um, we had one come online, Boss Bar 2 um, came online a few years ago, um, but that was one that was started, it was started construction um, in the, ooh, in the 80s, um, and it was halted for a long, so it was sort of, sort of canceled, but not really. Um, and then it came online um, just a few years, oh, 2016. So pretty recently, um, but we have two big ones under construction um, at the Vogel plant in Georgia. So two big 1100 uh, megawatt um, Westinghouse designs. Um, and so those are expected to come online in sort of the next few years. So those will be our first kind of really new, new designs um, to come online in 30 years. Okay. Um, what, what do you um, think is possible? What, you know, you said about 20% of the U.S.'s energy is nuclear right now. What do you think is possible and mm -hmm. how many plants need to do it? Yeah, so, I mean, anything's really possible. Um, what sort of, you know, my vision, I think um, right now renewables are growing a lot, and that's great. Uh, I think renewables do face a challenge, whereas you get to hire um, – Penetrations in the market, they get more expensive instead of less expensive um, because of, you know, grid issues and um, intermittency issues. So I think we want to see nuclear expand um, to kind of displace more fossil fuels, um, particularly coal, uh, and sort of to complement those growing renewable shares. So I think, I mean, definitely doubling the U.S. nuclear capacity is very possible, going up to 40 percent um, of our generation. You know. 20% of our electricity comes from nuclear, but it's only at about 67 power plants. Um, so you can really, you know, think about those plants. Um, they have very small footprints um, where they are. Um, they employ a lot of people in their communities. And so it's not unreasonable to think about doubling them. I mean, you could almost do it at a lot of these existing sites. You just build, you know, another, another reactor um, at a, at a site and a community that's very familiar with the technology. Um, and that's something that is one of the drivers of small modular reactors is that they could be built at existing nuclear power plant sites a lot more easily. The other idea, um, something that the new skill has floated is that um, if you put 12 of their reactors together, you get about 600 megawatts, which is about the size of a lot of coal plants in the U.S. And the nice thing about coal power plants 
um, sort of one nice thing about them is they already have the transmission line infrastructure for the electricity and they're already, um, you know, like a brownfield site. They're already an industrial site. So it might be easier to build um, an SMR, uh, a small nuclear plant there um, to replace that coal plant. And that would be really good for, you know, air pollution um, and also be a little bit easier construction wise because, um, you know, it's already a, a built up site, already has those transmission lines. Um, it's already sort of ready from the grids perspective for a new generator to be built there. Uh, and so looking at, you know, how many coal plants you could, if you were got in the business of replacing coal plants with small nuclear, there's a huge opportunity there um, because the U.S. has a lot of coal plants um, and a lot of them are getting pretty old and kind of ready to be shut down anyway. So uh, I think there's a huge potential there. So if you were really good at replacing coal plants, um, and then also sort of building more um, smaller reactors at existing nuclear power plant sites. Um, you know, you could get up to, I think, 40 or 50 percent of the U.S. electricity, um, not unreasonable, and then have um, renewables fill in the rest of that and uh, maybe a good amount or a reasonable amount of, of natural gas with carbon capture could be the rest. Okay. Well, very good. So what do you see as the... Uh the near-term future, the likely future of nuclear over the next, you know, five, ten years in the U.S.? Yeah, um, I think we're at a really exciting turning point. Um, so there's, you know, people are waiting for new scale um, to start their start their first construction of their first plant and, and see how that goes, which we will definitely see in the next five years. Um, but there's also about five or six of these um, non-light water reactor designs that are um, in sort of pre-licensing talks with uh, the regulator in the U.S. and they're looking at starting licensing in the next few years um, and seeing their first uh, demonstrations get built um, in maybe within five to 10 years um, will be really cool because it will be technologies that we've never seen before built at a commercial level in the U.S. and there's gonna be several different ones um, so a variety of technologies getting demonstrated around the U.S. Uh, at a commercial scale. And I think once we will see that happening, um, I said, yeah, kind of five to 10 year time period. Um, and they're, you know, real and people can go and see them and ask questions uh, and talk to people that work there. I think that's going to be where people start to get really excited and and see that it's really happening, um, uh, these new very different nuclear designs. Uh, and so I think that's that's what I'm looking forward to. And um, I think people are waiting for that point to sort of make their final judgments on, on what the future of nuclear really looks like. Very good. Well, Jessica, I appreciate you coming. And uh, it's been interesting. So, uh, you know, thanks for being here. Um, for people that want to find out more, you know, from Breakthrough or about nuclear in general, what, what resources do you have for them? Yeah, I would say the first thing is um, go to our website, thebreakthrough.org. Um, we do a lot of different environmental policy work um, across all sorts of issues. And also, if you want to just kind of follow more on what's happening with advanced nuclear, I'd say follow me on Twitter. It's at J underscore Lovering. And thanks for having me. It's been a really great conversation. Okay. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.